Um, in the service sheets, you should have a copy of the, um, the passage for today. Um, as I've uh, mentioned, uh, my name's Steve. Uh, I'm uh, involved in uh, one of the sister churches for Grace, Grace Church Hammersmith, uh, down the road in Brentford, um, whilst Rob and the family are away on holiday. Um, uh, I'm with you this morning. Um, you've been working through Matthew's Gospel uh, in the mornings. Um, uh, the section of Matthew's Gospel that, that you've been in uh, the last couple of weeks uh, is where Jesus is preaching, um, preaching to his disciples and some other people gathered around him on the side of a mountain. Uh, there's some very famous verses in here um, and um, some which are, um, if we're honest, sometimes we'll, we'll read very quickly and skip over because we kind of think we know what they mean, if you're at all familiar with uh, with scripture. Uh, they might be so familiar to us that we, we don't slow down and hear what, what Jesus is saying. Um, so we're at the end of chapter 5 of Matthew's Gospel um, and going into the start of chapter 6. Um, let, me, let me read the verses we're going to look at, then I'll pray, uh, and then we're going we're gonna to dive in. Let's, let's read from Matthew chapter 5 and verse 38. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard it, that it was said, you shall love your neighbour and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his son, to, uh, son rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect, as your Father in heaven is perfect. Beware of practising your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, you have received, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. This is God's word. Uh, though everything around us uh, fades away, God's word endures forever. Let's pray. Loving Father God, uh, you give your word to your people uh, for our good, to nourish us, to build us up, to make us wise for salvation, 
We pray that you would help us to hear what Jesus says this morning. We pray that you might proclaim your words uh, through uh, uh, scripture preached this morning. Transform us more into the likeness of Christ and make us cling on to him for our eternal hope as we hear your word preached this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. What is the point of you? Who do you think you are? How do you know where you've come from? Uh, there's, there's been a bit of a trend in the last few years. Um, you often see it if you're on the tube, um, uh, one, one of the adverts um, beside the maps. Um, it's for one of the several companies where you can send off a, a sample, uh, a blood sample or whatever, uh, to the company. You'll a few weeks later get um, a reply back telling you where you've come from, uh, a bit about your heritage, your lineage, uh, whether you're 5% Irish, or have a, a splash of Mediterranean somewhere in your dim and distant past. Um, a few years back, um, my, uh, my mom had a cousin coming to visit. Her cousin um, had lived in Canada all his life. Um, she never actually met him, um, but he was kind of a, a relative that they exchanged Christmas cards for years. And so before he came, she thought it would be a good idea to draw up a family tree of, of his side of the family, so he, he could see where she and he fitted together. Um, and it was, it was quite interesting. She, she went away and did some research. She found lots of old documents, found kind of birth certificates and marriage certificates. Um, one of the things that came to light is that um, one of our ancestors uh, wrote a book. Um, but apart from that, the most exciting thing really in, in that uh, part of my history was that uh, some people had spent some time in the north of England uh, in the Merchant Navy. Uh, everyone else had kind of really been around the same sort of few square miles in, in, in Glasgow where I grew up. Um, where who we are and where we come from is a big thing that we often think about and it explains a lot about who we are our identity we learn a lot about people by seeing them uh, alongside their family or where they come from you sometimes hear uh hear people uh, people say oh well, that explains it when you meet someone's parents um or um uh, a, a boyfriend trying to impress his, his girlfriend's parents will say, oh, see where she gets her good looks from. Where we come from shapes us at every level. And that is one of the big truths that runs through these uh, three uh, snippets that we hear in Jesus' uh, hillside sermon this morning. Whose family likeness we show off tells us a lot about who you and I are. And in order to open that up for us, uh, Jesus breaks down three different cultural patterns uh, so that he um, helps the people listening to understand what it looks like to be the people of God. Um, I'm going to use that word a few times this morning, culture. Um, when I use it, it, I use it to mean the, the, the kind of oxygen that we breathe every day, uh, the constant drip around us that tells us stories and shapes how we think about things. It shapes how we think about reality. Uh, each of us has our own kind of little bit of culture that we live in, our, our family and our, our friends, the, the things we listen to, uh, the workplace we're in. And it shapes how we uh, think about reality. It shapes what we think is reasonable. Uh, it shapes what we think is a legitimate opinion to have and what's beyond the pale. It shapes what we think is funny. Um, it shapes what we think is tragic, what's out of order, what gives us hope and what should make us angry. Uh, every moment of the day we're shaped by things, even when we don't realise it. Uh, the podcast we listen to, 
Um, the, the newspaper we really read with its political affiliations or the, the blogs that we read, the music that we play in the background, the conversations we have at work and at home, whether they're serious or innocuous. Culture shapes how we think uh, and makes it very hard for us to, to change. Um, and all of us belong to a culture. Uh, some aspects of it are good, uh, some of it are bad. And what Jesus is doing in these verses is uh, fracturing the sort of assumptions of the culture that the people that are listening uh, have. He's subverting them. He's saying, this is what's normal. I don't want you to think like this. I don't want you to behave like this. He, he wants his disciples to, to see what it looks like to show off their family likeness. Now, of course, his listeners were in a very different culture to the one that you and I are in day to day. Um, historically and culturally, the kind of the sort of geopolitical situation was very different. Uh, but the, the aspects that Jesus wants to subvert are actually very relevant for us here in, in this part of London in 2022. Um, and so they're very useful for us in Jesus' church to understand what it looks like to show off our family likeness. So the first piece of cultural wisdom that Jesus responds to is based around how we react when we're in an adversarial situation, when someone's out to get us. Culturally, Jesus says, you're taught to repay violence with violence. You meet strength with strength. You take a bad circumstance and you throw the fire right back at the one who sent it to you. Don't let the bad guy smell fear. Make sure they know you're the alpha dog. Culturally, he says, you're expected to set yourself in the face of the person who's out to get you. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Once I was, uh, a previous job, I was told by my director, it's a big company, big multinational, um, he said something in this, this shape. Leaders lead. They don't empathise. Conflict makes them rise. It's a mantra that says, don't let them get away with it, whoever them are. Stand up for your rights. You deserve anything that you want. But Jesus is subverting that cultural wisdom. He tells the crowd, don't set yourself up against the bad guy. Be gentle to the one who is cruel to you. Repay violence with patience. Repay anger with gentleness. And don't hoard power for yourself. Be generous to the vulnerable. You see that in verse 42. Don't make the vulnerable ask for help over and over again just because you can. Give help to them freely. Don't make the people that you, uh, that owe you, that you owe money to wait to pay them. Don't be the one who trashes the competitors when you are responding to a big bid at work. Don't talk down other students in your class because that's the best way to get your teacher's approval. Jesus is expecting that the people who want to be godly will absolutely face aggression. And don't, at this point, I'm, I'm going to step out slightly from my main point. I, I don't want us to hear what Jesus is not saying. Jesus is not saying ignore injustice. He's not saying that abuse doesn't matter. Christians have definitely been guilty of saying things like that in the past, of saying something along the, along the lines of um, the most important thing in godliness is being stoic. Just put up with a difficult situation. Don't, uh, don't deal with the abuser. J 
just focus on personal godliness in the situation. Just accept it. And I want to say at this point that that is a wrong opinion. That's harmful. It's very damaging. Jesus cares intensely, we see throughout scripture, about marginalised people, about vulnerable people, about abused people. All through the gospel we see Jesus is the one who goes out of his way to care for people who are treated badly, more so than anyone else around him. So this is not um, a statement that's telling us to ignore um, the exploitation of the vulnerable. He's drawing a picture of what God's people will look like when others are out to get them and striking a contrast with the culture. He assumes that God's people will be mistreated. He assumes that their mistreatment is a, a when and not an if. He doesn't condone the behaviour of the people who are doing the mistreatment. And elsewhere in scripture, Jesus talks about how he's the one that will stand in front of and alongside his mistreated people. He assumes that the, the people that he's speaking to will have an option in how they respond. They'll have a choice in how they respond to their situation. They may not be able to get out of it, but they still have uh, the ability to make a choice. It's not a, not a statement that's being directed um, at um, a wife who's being beaten or a teenager who's being trafficked. Um, it's not explained to them how they should deal with the fact that this world is messed up and full of brokenness and evil. It's subverting how God's people should react to being mistreated for being God's people. That's, that's the shape of what Jesus is talking about. It's not about suppressing justice or overlooking abuse. It's about God's people developing godly characteristics when they're treated as God's people definitely will be. We look like God not in how well we just get on and grin and bear it when life isn't fair or life is evil. We look like God when we're patient and gentle in the face of being mistreated for belonging to him. We look like God when we don't lose our generosity, when we break that cycle of violence and hurt that will inevitably be the experience of those who love God. Jesus is telling the crowd it's not enough to live as if this injustice isn't happening, to stick your fingers in your ears and pretend it's not there. He's telling them to live in a way that breaks the cycle, that reverses it. Take violence and return gentleness. Take power and influence and return generosity. The cultural pattern is experience violence at someone's hand and that allows you to pass violence back to them and exploitation to the people who are less powerful than you. But the counter pattern that Jesus talks about is generosity to the vulnerable, not passing on the violence that we've experienced. And it's a pattern that precisely maps to how God treats his people, what he's done first. People that when you look at the scope of history, deserve God's judgment, but instead, receive abnormal, stop you in your tracks, gentleness at God's hand. Jesus describes a pattern of grace rather than revenge, of gentleness rather than rights. And, and gentleness, I think, is perhaps one of the most poorly understood words in our vocabulary. Gentleness is not about weakness. It's about strength. Gentle people have strength but they choose not to use it to get what they want or deserve 
Gentleness is strength controlled, not strength unleashed. Jesus is describing gentle people. In the context of a world that hates God and will practice violence against his people, injustice against them, God's people will be a gentle people. God has enormous strength and gives it to his people, but we're marked by using our strength, how, in verse 42, to protect and provide for others and not to defend ourselves. I don't know if any of you have watched any of the new uh, ITV show Trigger Point. Um, it's based around uh, bomb disposal experts um, who work for the police. Uh, and at key points during the show, they, they get in and defuse a bomb uh, before it turns into a violent explosion. Uh, sometimes they do it very quickly, like that. Sometimes it's careful and methodical. Sometimes it's done in the heat of incredibly stressful circumstances. Jesus points uh, in these verses God's people to how God himself behaves. God has diffused the incredible damage wreaked by sin with gentleness. And he's telling his people, let your gentle patience diffuse sinfulness. Uh, one of the common threads in these sections is that none of this is possible on our own. So often if we've experienced mistreatment um, or uh, exploitation or, or violence, Psychologically, physiologically, we carry the scars of that with us. We were actually unable uh, physically to, to break those patterns, um, which is why so often you hear tales of, of people involved in abuse are victims of abuse themselves. It actually is a physical thing that is almost impossible to break out of. What we see in Scripture is that Jesus is the one who's lived this perfectly who met violence against himself with gentleness on our behalf, who consciously curtailed the full might of heaven's armies so, and was oppressed and treated harshly himself so that he could rescue us. The pattern in these verses is that God's people begin to look like the God who has adopted us, who's welcomed us into his family. Not through our own discipline. This isn't telling us to work harder at being gentle. But by his grace, God makes it possible for us to live like this. He moves first, and he allows us to show off the family likeness. It's meant to make us think of the wonder of what God has done in his gentleness. When our friends continue to bait us for believing in God, when a teacher or a lecturer makes fun of Christians for holding to a set of morals, when we lose friends or when promotions slow down at work because of the church that we go to, or what we believe. None of that becomes an excuse for us to use our strength and influence to damage other people. It's all too easy to let that be the, the shape. That's the shape of the world around us. God's people have no license to undermine and hurt others, even when we've been hurt ourselves. We repay violence with gentleness because Jesus offered gentleness to us. So Jesus then goes on. Um, to undermine another cultural assumption. Um, the, the first one was about how God's people react to opposition. And then the second one, he, he looks at how God's people are meant to react to the people behind the opposition. So the culture says, love the ones that are worth loving. Despise anyone else, anyone who's not for you. So what does Jesus say? Verse 43 and, and onwards. Love the bad guy. Pray for the one who wants to harm you. 
ask God to bless them. That, that word bless, it's got connotations of eternal good. Look for the eternal good of the one who hates you. Loving someone who's already part of my tribe, Jesus says, makes me in no way distinct from anyone else. That's what everybody does. Instead, let your loving kindness pursue eternal good for your enemies. That's subversive. Only loving the ones who are around us, who are part of our tribe, does actually show off a family likeness. But it just makes us look just like people who don't know God. Instead, Jesus wants his people to show a different family likeness. To love in a way that overflows the banks of our good relationships into the bad ones. Loving people who probably will never return that love. Because that's precisely how God has loved his people. Loving the one who, at this moment in time, hates us. Love that's drawn by culture is carefully measured. It works on the assumption that we each only have so much love to give, so, so why waste it on someone who doesn't love you back? On someone who hasn't earned it? He's just not worth it, hun. Jesus is preaching here lavish loving. Loving that's proactive. Love that goes out and seeks those who are unlovable. The turning point of the whole section um, is in verse 48. You therefore must be what? Perfect. As your father, your heavenly father is perfect. Now that sounds like a high bar. Um, It sounds like a good Christian phrase. And so we often rush past that kind of sentence. It's just Jesus doing Jesus. He says that kind of thing and you know, we'll try not to think too much about it because there's no way I'm going to live up to that. He's using a word here that is really important. He's using a word that means completely mature, completely living according to your purpose, achieving what you are meant for. It's the, the word that Jesus himself will scream out later on on the cross. His last words when he finishes his work of rescue. He says on the cross, I'm done. It's finished. The job is complete. I have achieved what I came here to do. He's saying it's perfect. That's what he's saying in these verses. um, God does exactly what he intends to do. Exactly his purpose at every opportunity, every second, every moment of history... God does exactly what he intends to do. And so God's people should be like him. Behave according to what God has already made you. Live in key with your purpose. Don't be stingy in love, Jesus says. Don't love just the ones that are capable of loving you back. Love lavishly. Love in a way that goes out and seeks out the enemy. Love in a way that seeks to reconcile enemies to their God, though they hate you. It's subversive. Love doesn't wait for its object to be lovable, Jesus says. And that is how he has loved you and I. Jesus tells his hearers that God's people learn to love the way that we've already been loved ourselves. Love that shows the family likeness, seeks for the eternal best for our enemies, and not just for our friends. So Jesus goes on, 
start chapter six to um, look at a, a third cultural, uh, culturally accepted belief. Um, the, the, the third one is something like this. Doing good needs to be seen if it's going to have any value. So the, the cultural tide is, is this. It's good to do good. It's good to be virtuous. But something is only valid if it's seen, if it's visible. Actions and identity only have value if they're affirmed by other people. To be doing good, you need to be seen doing good. Jesus uh, gives the example of giving to the needy. It's one example. Uh, when he talks about uh, practicing your righteousness, he's talking about charitable giving, basically, um, in this case. Um, and the people that he points to are actually very generous. They're giving lavishly to people who actually really need it. So that in itself is obviously not bad. What he's talking about here is not whether or not people should give. God's, God's people, Jesus assumes, will give generously to those who need it. What matters is how they go about that giving. Uh, in the example, uh, the people Jesus talks about make a big noise about it. Uh, they stop people in their tracks. Um, they get them to stop whatever they're doing and give their full uh, devoted attention. Uh, that something significant is about to happen. Okay, now that you've stopped, I can do my giving. The giving isn't the important thing to the people in the, in the tale. Being seen to be giving is what's important to them. Jesus says, that's just like them looking for wages. It's a transactional thing. What those givers get in return is just a payment for their services. They get credibility. They get seen. They get praised. But it's temporary. It's a transaction. I get seen for doing something that's good, and in return, I get praise. That's what I get paid by. And it means that if I want to continue to be good tomorrow, if I want to get more praise, I have to be seen doing something again tomorrow. I can't just keep giving. I've got to keep being seen giving. And then in the next day, I've got to be seen again, and the next, and the next. I have to not only do good things, but make sure I'm constantly seen doing the right thing. My virtue gets its value from being visible. But how does Jesus subvert this? Yes, God's people are absolutely to do good things. But they're to do them in a way that our closest ally doesn't know what's happening. That's how Jesus describes it. That way, he says, you're rewarded with a gift from God not transactional wages. It's not a, a like for like balance statement. It's not, you can either get paid by praise from people or paid by uh, praise from God. You can either get paid by praise from people or you can get God's free gift of his grace. Generosity doesn't get its value from visibility, Jesus says. Generosity gets its value because it's a God thing to do. Doing something that's unseen leads to a gift of grace from God. Recognition by your Father in heaven, not because we've earned it, but because it pleases him when his children show their family likeness. Virtue doesn't get its value from being visible, according to Jesus. It gets its value from God. Don't rob yourself of God's grace by stopping everyone to watch what you're doing. The cadence of our society is that that's, that's the way we think. It's... Good only matters if it's seen. Um, 
in the the bus journey from our house in Brentford to, to here in Hammersmith. I do it two or three times a week. Uh, I work in an office in Hammersmith a couple of days a week. Um, normally in that sort of 35 minute, 40 minute bus journey, about 10 times um, I'm told, make sure you're seen to be wearing your mask. Now I'm making no statement about whether that's a good or a bad thing to do. Um, don't hear what I'm not saying. But the, the way it's communicated to me is you'll do it because then everyone will see you're doing the right thing. You're doing it because you love grandma. The same's true in uh, offices, uh, in graduate jobs. There's a culture of presenteeism. Uh, graduates have to show that they are first in the office before their managers and last out the door in the evening. For God's people, it's a given that we should care about doing the right thing, about generosity in this case toward others, caring for the vulnerable, feeding the hungry, comforting the lonely. But we don't do it in a way that first stops everyone to, to look at what, what's going on. We're to do it quietly. We're to err on the side of secrecy. The value of caring for the needy comes from God and not from recognition. So what? Um, Jesus called out these three different cultural patterns that God's people are to, to swim against. Uh, he tells them, don't just stop doing what the culture tells you. Turn it 180 degrees around. It's going to feel unnecessarily comfortable to live that way. But God's people... Um, being God's people in the way that Jesus describes in these verses is proactively doing the opposite of what's expected of us, of what's normal. And it will confuse the culture around us. Because you and I and everyone in our culture are trained to think in one way. And so as soon as you behave any way different, people get confused. Jesus is, in, uh, Jesus is teaching not only stop doing these things, but follow a counter pattern instead. The pattern of meeting opposition with strength is replaced with meeting anger and hostility with gentleness, a gentleness that diffuses sinfulness. The pattern of loving those uh, who've earned it is replaced with seeking the best for those who are out to get you, the eternal best. The pattern of virtue getting its value from visibility replaced with trying to hide our generosity and seeking instead an eternal relationship with God. It's big on gentleness and big on generosity, but it is short on recognition. It is short on status building and self-preservation. What Jesus describes to his disciples in these verses is very similar to our cultural pattern uh, as well. A world that loves to be seen to be doing good. A world that loves to defend its rights. A world that loves uh, those who deserve to be loved and then cast out everybody else. And everyone who behaves outside that pattern will cause confusion. Ultimately, they won't be able to be a full member of our society. Uh, one of my colleagues, who's, who's not a Christian, um, uh, several years ago told me that at some point in my career, I'd have to make a choice. Um, I'd have to sacrifice some aspects of who I am, um, what, what she saw in me, um, to reach the next level of leadership. Uh, and not just in that company, but generally in business. Um, if I wanted to keep getting promoted, I would have to give up some aspects of what I valued about myself. Um, I could choose to do it, and that was fine, and sacrifice that personality. I could choose to uh, be more successful, and that was totally fine as well. Uh, but there was two bad outcomes. I could either unconsciously keep changing who I was because that was the easiest thing to do, and I could keep getting promoted that way, not do it consciously, 
or I could be resentful that the world around me uh, didn't like who I was uh, and just have a chip on my shoulder. It's actually one of the most helpful pieces of um, workplace discipleship I've ever had. In these verses, Jesus is telling us, show off whose family you belong to. Now, we need to get that the right way around. Um, I have four children, and my kids aren't my kids because they look like me. They look like me because they're my kids. They've inherited my skin tone, my eye colour, my complete lack of sporting prowess. They show off their, the family likeness. When they completely fail to kick a football in the right direction, they're showing which family they belong to, what they've inherited from me. I didn't let them into my family because they look a little bit like me. That's what Jesus is saying in these verses. He's not saying, give in secret and God will like you more. He's not saying, be beaten up by secular folks and you're a better Christian. The pattern of the verses is, God's people show off whose family they already belong to. Follow Jesus' pattern. Um, Jesus says um, that God's people follow Jesus' pattern, not the prevailing winds of culture, because we are already God's children. We don't earn his fatherhood. He's made us his children, and we end up becoming more like what he's already made us to be. God, the Father, who cares for enemies, for you and for I, when we hate him and deals with that enmity, rescues us. God, the Son, who met violence and antagonism with gentleness, precisely so that he could turn enemies into God's children. God, the Holy Spirit, who gives quietly and secretly and consistently in ways that aren't expected or observed most of the time, but transforms us. God's telling, Jesus is telling God's people, show off your family likeness. Live this way because you already belong to a God who is already like this. We can only live like this because God already has. And as with so much of Jesus' sermon in these couple of chapters, we're reminded we can't do it on our own strength. But God has already lived this so that his children can learn to follow along. We live in a world that's equally obsessed with this uh, kind of pattern, uh, with love that has to be earned, uh, strength that gets what it deserves, virtue that's visible. And so Jesus' counter patterns are important for us to hear. Just as we finish, um, I've got, there's two implications I think are worth uh, poking at a little bit more. You can take these away and think about them. Um, Firstly, God's people are concerned with eternity and not with the short term. God's people are concerned with eternity and not the short term. So in those days that you are in the office late, trying to keep up with billable hours, desperately trying to network with a manager who will give you the right comment on your review, the value of what we do doesn't come from being dominant. If I trust Jesus, I am God's child. And the time frame that I judge success over and failure over is eternity, not days, weeks, months, years, decades, eternity. We don't ignore injustice and suffering today, absolutely not. But we remember that the promises God has made to his children are for an eternity spent in his new creation. And so we long for justice, not just justice that's immediate, but justice that is eternal, that's certain, that lasts forever. If we're mocked or bullied, God cares. 
But true justice is not the same as immediate punishment all the time. Our pattern is to be gentle with our strength. The best possible result is for our enemies to be exposed to God's love just as we have been, because God works in eternal timelines. And then secondly, God's people get their value from his grace and not from being seen. God's people get their value from his grace and not from being seen. So you and I don't need to convince our colleagues that church is worthwhile. Church doesn't get its value because it does food banks and toddler groups. They're good things. But God's people are generous, not for credit, but because we're like our Father in heaven. So if a teacher suggests that you do charity work to make your CV look better, doing good doesn't get its value from being visible, from making us look better. We care for the vulnerable because that's what God's done first. It's going to feel uncomfortable for you and I to swim against this particular cultural tide. Everything around us tells us that we need to be seen. Our identity is only valid if it's affirmed by someone else. We're only worth something. We're only good if people recognise us. But Jesus says that we look like our Father in heaven by getting our value from his amazing grace, the gift of an eternity with him. So who do you look like? Jesus tells us that the culture around us sets a tone that we shouldn't sing along to. We don't tune our lives to the key of the world. We learn to look like our Father in heaven. We learn to offer gentleness in the face of violence. To pray for eternal good for the ones who hate us. To extend lavish love which overwhelms our enemies. We learn to give gener generosity that gives quietly. God's children grow to look like our Father in heaven. His loving kindness has reached into the world that hated him and has transformed us. His plan for eternity offered eternal good for us instead of the anger and the punishment we deserved. His generosity down the years has provided just what we need at each moment. Jesus' command in these verses is to show off our family resemblance. If we trust Jesus, we are already God's children. And so Jesus exhorts us to live like our Father and swim against the culture that surrounds us. Let's pray. Loving Father, we thank you that we can, by your grace, call you our Father. You're not a distant God, a God who doesn't care about us. You're a God who loves us. A God who has gone beyond uh, what was comfortable. Uh, a God who has extended love to his enemies. Father, we pray that we would be delighted by that and we would love to look more like our Father in heaven. Father, drive this word into our hearts and where it is uncomfortable for us to live it out, we pray for the strength of your Holy Spirit to look like Christ. Father, thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Let's uh, stand and sing together again uh, as the heavens are higher than the air.